All right, we're going to be in Luke 24, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. This, of course, is picking up after what we read on Good Friday, that Jesus was buried and laid in the tomb. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, making the spices they had prepared. These are the women that had traveled with him from Galilee, uh, kind of acting like den mothers to the twelve disciples and to Jesus. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Can you imagine the misery of the disciples the Saturday after the crucifixion? Every hope, every belief that you held, all the signs and miracles that you'd seen and performed are up there nailed to a cross. Not only that, you didn't even stand with him. You ran away. At the, at the best, you watched from a distance so that nobody would notice you or recognize you. And they couldn't prepare his body fully because it was the day before the Sabbath. And of course, you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day. So Jesus was laid in the tomb and they had to leave him there. So the next day, it's still, it's still the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The city is full. The people are singing. They're celebrating. They're remembering deliverance. And there you are trying to have your Sabbath dinner while knowing that the one you believe to be the Messiah is dead. The next morning, Sunday morning, the women from Galilee, and as I just said, these were the women that traveled with Jesus. Some of them were women like Mary Magdalene who had been saved. She had had demons cast out of her. Some of them were the mother of James and John. It seems that Jesus' mother Mary traveled with them as well. They, they just took care of Jesus and the boys while they were out doing ministry. They would have prepared meals for them. They would have taken uh, care of them and, and probably fussed all over them when they came in and and now they're going out to prepare the body of Jesus. That's what the spices were for. When the Jews had been in Egypt, they had learned the, uh, the art of what we would call mummification, but they would embalm the bodies, they would wrap them up tight, and uh, they carried that over. We read about that happening to Joseph in the book of Genesis. So this is what they're going to Jesus to do. All they had had time to do, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had washed the body, wrapped it in, in linen cloths, and laid him in the tomb. But instead of Jesus, they find no guards. There had been a Roman guard set on the tomb because the Pharisees had said, if, if they can get to the tomb, they'll steal the body and act like he rose from the dead. So they set Roman guards in front of the tomb, but they're gone. We know from another story there had been an earthquake and an angel had showed up and they had fallen out. They had fainted like they were dead. The stone was rolled away. They go in there. There's no body. And then there's two shining angels standing next to them. And they reasonably freaked out. They were frightened. They bowed their face to the ground. And they were asked by these angels, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. Can you imagine the smile, the ear to ear grin on the face of that? He's not here. Why are you looking for him here? He's, he's not here. He's alive. He's risen, just like he told you. What had he told them in Galilee? If you read in Luke 18, 31 through 34, 
Taking the twelve, Jesus had said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise." You wonder how they didn't get that, but it says they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus spoke in parables quite a bit. You know that, don't you? And so they maybe assumed, well, what does he mean he'll be killed and rise on the third day? What's the symbolism behind that? People are still asking that question when the simple truth is he was being literal. The Son of Man is going to be crucified and rise from the dead. They didn't understand it then. And in fact, you read the stories of the resurrection, and they're not fully going to grasp it for a while. Jesus is going to appear to them over 40 days. But the truth is that Jesus was alive. Amen, somebody? Amen. The Son of God had paid for sins on the cross. He had taken the wrath of God on himself and been raised from the dead, signifying that that sacrifice had been accepted. You say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins. You say, how do I know that it worked? Anybody can say they die for any reason. How do we know? Because he rose from the dead on the third day and came back to testify. The wrath of God had been appeased and death could not hold Jesus any longer. So there they were in a tomb looking for the risen Lord. They were looking in the wrong place for the one who could give them eternal life. And that's what I want to talk about today. So many people are looking in all the wrong places for that which only Christ can give. You're rooting around in tombs full of dead men's bones trying to find life. Whether that's eternal life, talking about forever in heaven, or whether that's just abundant life and pleasant life and real life now. You say, well, listen, I'm not really interested in that stuff. I'm not paying attention to that. I don't, I don't really care about this sort of thing. Here's what I'll say to you. Every longing of the human heart is a longing for God. Let me say that again. Every longing of the human heart is a longing for God. Even if you don't realize it. Especially if you don't realize it. Even and especially if you are looking for it in terrible, awful, even wicked ways. It's not that that desire particularly is right, but at the base of it is something that God has placed within you. Solomon said that God has placed eternity into the heart of man. We know that something's up around here, don't we? We know. You have to be trained into atheism. People are naturally seeking after God. So every longing of the human heart is a longing for God, meaning the things that you're chasing and that you're so passionate and desirous to have, you're looking for God even if you don't realize it. And so I ask you today, if that's what we're looking for, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you looking for life and joy and hope and peace among the dead bones and the graveyards of life? It is only in the risen Jesus that you can find not just life forever, but life right now. Jesus said, I've come that they may have eternal life. But he also said in John 10, 10, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here's how we're going to work through this today. We're going to look at five different tombs that people are rooting around in looking for life. Five different sets of dead bones that we're sorting through trying to see if there's something there. This is what will satisfy me. And the first tomb we're going to look at, first tomb full of bones where we seek life is that of pleasure. This is an easy one. This is an obvious one. Everybody gives pleasure a try. We seek to enjoy life to the fullest 
Nothing in itself wrong with that. But we do it in all manner of indulgence and sensuality and what you call libertinism. You can hear the word liberty in there. It means I am free to do anything and I do. It's not just I want to have a good life. It's I'm going to make my life about what feels good. I'm going to try my best to be as happy as possible all the time. This can be through food. I'm going to have good food. I'm going to have good drink all the time. And I'm not going to restrain myself. It can be just through fun. You're constantly looking for the next thing. The next thing to give you that rush, to give you that sense of excitement. It can be sexuality. You all know people like this. They're chasing down all manner of sexual experience in order to find what life is all about. More obviously, it's done through drugs and alcohol. Trying to feel good. The person who actually lives out that Dr. Pepper theology, do what feels good, is the drug addict. He always does what feels good. He never restrains himself. It can be other things, though. It can just be having pretty things, new experiences, anything else that just makes you feel good. Most of those things are not wrong in and of themselves, but I'm telling you, you're not going to find what life is all about through pleasure. I'm going to quote from Ecclesiastes five times today. This is Solomon's conclusion at the end of his life, and it is brutally honest. Every philosopher who thinks he can come to Christianity and have some hard things to say about what real life is like, we know. Solomon told us. So if you're trying to solve your life through pleasure, Ecclesiastes 1.8 says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not filled with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Isn't that the truth? All your senses cannot be satisfied. You never get to the point where you're like, I think I've, I've had enough food, finally. I don't need to ever have a nice meal again. That was enough for me. Or say something, I've finally seen the most beautiful painting in the world, therefore I don't really need to see another beautiful thing ever again. That's not how it works, is it? Pleasure cannot satisfy. It's very much like a drug. And that you get a high from it. You feel great. You feel good. You go to that first, remember your first real concert? You guys who are musical? The first time, oh, man, you just were transported, man. But everyone after that doesn't quite measure up. And you're chasing it. You're trying to get that feeling again. And even if you've, you've been to a thousand, you're just, you'll get that one moment where you feel like you taste it again. And you keep going and you keep going. Pleasure requires greater and greater stimulus in order to get back to the same place you were, to the point of exhaustion. How many testimonies have we heard of people who made it, who had everything they ever wanted, and then realized, I thought it would be here, it's not here. I thought I was going to find life in all this. Turns out it's, it's a tomb. It's full of dead men's bones. But we keep trying. We keep convincing ourselves that I will one day find enough carnal pleasure to make my life worth living. And we look at everybody else and it seems like they're all having a great time. So they're doing it, so we try to be like them. Here's a secret. It's not working for them either. It's not working. Even though your own enjoyment begins to wane and the things that used to give you so much pleasure and even legitimate enjoyment, they're now just exhausting to you. It's just a chore. It's just a job. You don't even enjoy going out with the boys anymore. You just do it because it's what you do. And you think, oh, I got to get back to it. No, you can't get back. And you can't find something else to give you that same feeling because you're going to run out on that one too. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. 
He's not in that tomb called pleasure. The second tomb full of bones where we seek life is that of possessions. Stuff. That's a great English word. Stuff. We talk about the Greek words an awful lot, but you know, possession. Sounds very sophisticated, right? I have great possessions. No, you got a lot of stuff. It's just a, it's a demeaning word. My English teacher used to say, my seventh grade English teacher, if I ever see the word stuff in your paper, you're getting points off. But it's a great word to describe people that want to fill their life with possessions and define themselves by it. We seek to find meaning in life with stuff, accumulating marks of success. Real life is having one of those, having lots of these. That's real life. It can be money. That's the obvious one. Because we all know that people who have lots of money are the most satisfied and the most happy and the most content and have the best marriages and the happiest kids, right? It can be clothes. It can be cars. Sometimes I wonder where car guys get the money to get all those cars. Because like, man, I know where you work and in some cases you work for me and I don't know how you're getting all these, but I guess if that's your priority, you're going to get it. It can be shoes. It can be houses. It can be collectibles. It might not be valuable to anybody else, but it's valuable to you. Something that you care about. And you live for that one moment for somebody to come and say, oh, cool. And that's your whole life is for that. It can be trophies, accomplishments of things that you've gotten. It can be books. It can be any object on which you're hanging your hopes. Anything tangible and physical that says, this is what my life is all about. <laughs> Well, you know, Solomon had a lot of possessions. He was king. And I was going to read Ecclesiastes 2, but I actually found a better verse for it this morning. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 13, he says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Someone's like, you got a lot of stuff. Great. You might lose it. You invested in Bitcoin and you lost all your money. Or you say, I'm going to leave it to my son. Well, how do you know your son's going to take good care of it? You're going to die he says, naked like you came into the world. Your little kids don't have stuff when they're born. It's just them. Same thing for us. Don't, don't try to live your life for something that can actually be taken away from you. It's like, this is the most important thing in my life. And somebody can knock you down and take it from you. There goes your life. And what happens when you get those things anyway? They clutter up, first of all. I used to work for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I cleared out hoarders' houses every week. They had more stuff than anybody, but it was all worthless. Actually, it wasn't all worthless. Some of the stuff you get in there and you're like, this was buried under all that? This is worth something, but it's not anymore because it's been ruined. That's what happens when you hold on to things. Or they go out of style. I got all the stuff. And eventually, it's all going to burn one day. What we do is this is called affirming the consequent. It's a logical fallacy. You say, this famous successful person wears those shoes so if I buy those shoes, I will therefore become a famous, successful person. That's why I buy those Air Jordans, because one of these days, I'm finally going to get that call, and I'm going to get drafted, and you're all going to know my name. We know how silly that is, but don't we do that? Oh, he's a successful, happy person, and he drives one of those. I'm going to get one of those, too. This is why advertising works. Say, so how much money did they spend to get that actor? They're going to make money off of that ad. 
because we do this. We think we need more things. This is going to mark that I have arrived yeah, until the next one comes out. I have been so luckless in that I have never, ever been on top of a trend. I've only ever been like right behind it. By the time I get the thing, everybody else is over it. But maybe you're not. Maybe you spend all your time being right on top of those things. It's not a good way to live. You think the next one will satisfy. And then you get it and you need a new one. And then you act like a jerk to make sure everyone else knows about it. Haven't you known that? Maybe you didn't do this. Somebody else, of course. Nobody here. You, you, they get something and they're so excited about it and you don't seem to show a sufficient amount of enthusiasm or show them the appropriate amount of, of respect for it. Or maybe you're in a, an argument with some guy at work and he starts talking about how much his watch cost. He's like, listen, I don't think we should do that. What are you doing? My watch is $20,000. Don't you know? You listen to me. It's like, who could care what your watch says? It's a stupid idea. That's why we're not doing it. Are you not greater than stuff? Are you not more valuable as a person than your stuff? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. Stop rooting around in the tomb of possessions. The third tomb full of bones where we're trying to find life is power. We try to attain status. Oh, status is a much more respectable word than power, isn't it? I don't trust anybody that, that seeks after power, but I do want to be respected by everybody. Same thing, buddy. Come on. We want control over other people. And we'll sacrifice everything to get it. We'll sacrifice the people who love us in order to gain people who don't love us, but they listen to us. And this can be political power. We've seen people like that. They just, they need it. They want it. They're hungry for it. It's going to be power in the home. You're not running for anything. But mama's going to be in charge of this house. I don't care if you're married. I don't care if you're off. You're listening to me. We're going to do what I say. This can be respect in certain circles. You, you go to the club and you want people to know you and know your name. Or organizations or churches will do this. There's a pastor that we, we were discipling in Nepal who told us in the Q&A time, I don't like being called the servant of God. I'd rather be called the ambassador of God. So he didn't like the idea of being a servant. So servants are, are dirty and servants work and other people tell them what to do. I want to be an ambassador. That's what we do. Accomplishments, victory. Well, Solomon was king. He was the king during Israel's golden age. He held the, the largest boundaries of the kingdom of Israel ever. In Ecclesiastes 4.16, he says, There was no end of all the people whom he led. You can't even count my subjects. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. He says, those who come later aren't going to care. Most people don't even notice when you accomplish things. Haven't you found that out? You get powerful, you get a promotion, you get a raise. Most people don't even care. And, and, and anyway, we tread down people in our own life to get that. Can you even name every president? Maybe some of y'all can, but that's not the point, is it? What do you know about Chester A. Arthur? He was the president of the United States. You think we're going to remember all these people? All these people that we care about? How about every candidate that almost won for the other party? You can't even remember who ran like 20 years ago. But they had power. They were authoritative. People wanted them to rule the country and thereby the world. And we don't even remember their names. That's what happens. Surely this is not where life is to be found. 
in being known, even if it's just you just want to be TikTok famous, it's the same thing. You want everybody to know who you are and listen to you and tell you how wonderful you are. We desire to be and to have and to be in the room. But don't you know that people that do this, don't they come across as super desperate? It's, like, it's almost unseemly around election season to watch these people grovel for votes. They're going to send you over to go talk to Saudi Arabia or whoever, and you're over here pandering to somebody in, in nowhere Mississippi, right? Because you have to have it. I must have this. And the second somebody threatens that, the knives come out. Or you watch somebody online, you know, some social media. I refuse to use the word influencer because that's a ridiculous word that they made up for themselves. I want to be called an influencer. Okay, that's fine. You can do that. But watch when one of them starts to lose followers. When one of them starts to be a little less popular, a little less known. It, it gets silly online. The stuff people will do to get people to look at me, look at me. And people, you know, they don't even need to be famous. They're always posting stuff online to get a reaction from people. I just had a hard day. It's been so tough, but God is good. You're not talking about God. What do you want? You want people in the comments, eh, you're such a champion and you're wonderful and everybody likes you. And, or, you know, some girl who very obviously spent hours preparing the way she looks, posts something online. I look hideous, I know, but... What does she look at? She's fishing for compliments, right? Because she has to be told by millions of people, you're beautiful and wonderful. And it's embarrassing, isn't it? It's embarrassing. This is what power does. You're not going to find it there. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. You're rooting around in the tombs. The fourth one is that of philosophy. You could branch this out to say wisdom. Being smart. Learning, knowledge, smart people who chase after those things, what do they want more than anything else? I desire knowledge and the truth. No, you don't. You want to be better than everybody else. That's what smart people want. They want to be better. They got good grades in school and they got pats on the head. They graduated from school. Now nobody cares. And it bothers them. It eats at them. I did everything right and nobody. So what do we do? You convince yourself that the rest of society is messed up and foolish, and if they just listened to me, everything would be all right. Some of y'all went to college. You met those professors. You've read their books. You've heard their speeches. Knowledge. It can be done through academics and degrees. It can be done through books and independent study, and you're constantly looking for an opportunity to drop that new fact that you just learned. It can be done through conspiracy theories. I understand how this world works. Through my Wikipedia research, I've learned what's really going on, man. It can be done even through things like witchcraft. There's a secret behind reality. I'm going to find out what it is. And sometimes you're not even smart, but you just act smart. You put on this air of cynicism. Everybody knows how dumb people are. The average person is an idiot. Like, I, don't, I think the average person's average. I don't know what you're trying to say. Or through being super mystical in the church, people do that. You ever have somebody say, well, you know, someday the Lord will reveal to you the truth about this. I did that after preaching one time. This old man came up to me and he says, young man, you had a lot of good things to say. And there was some point in the, in the sermon that he disagreed with. He goes, but I, you know that that's not right. And I had the verse over. I said, this is what it says. He goes, the Lord will reveal to you that there's more to the truth than what's in the Bible. Which is like that, you know. I need to step out of smiting distance for that guy. But 
but he thought he was so smart. Just sitting there, oh, he's on his way. One day he'll get to where I am. That's knowledge. Ecclesiastes 2.16 says, Of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Knowledge often does not translate to real life. Amen? Amen. Some of y'all got degrees that you have not used once. You're doing great, but that degree just kind of sits there gathering dust. No shame. That's just the way it goes. Unless you get bitter and pouty about it. I was told that if I got good grades, everybody would bow down and lick my boots. And uh, they don't seem to be ready to do that. I'm smart. I have knowledge. I understand the arguments. I understand the philosophy. I understand the physics, whatever it is. And you know what, it, what is true? Let me just say this too. Most smart people, quote unquote smart, I guess how they define themselves is by being smart. They're just copying what most other smart people say. They've not done the investigation themselves. They didn't do the experiment themselves. I don't know if there's a list somewhere, but there's like, these are the things you have to say and believe in order to be considered smart. It's what smart people do. It's kind of like if you ever go online and you have a conversation with, you know, I'm not talking about a reasonable person, but like a raging, bitter, intellectual atheist. They all say the same four things. And they're talking like, I'm enlightened and smart and elevated above everybody else. It's like, really? Because the last 12 guys all said that exact thing. You're getting it from somewhere. So how smart are you? You're just saying, what do smart people believe? This? Good. Now I'm smart. But then we sit on the mountaintop and we chuckle and we talk to ourselves and we have that insufferable pride as we look at those that claim to know the truth as you slowly miss out on real life because of your so-called wisdom. This is what life's all about. Most people, you know, to be smart, you know, means to know that life has no meaning, right? That, that's, that's the thing that we say, oh, if you believe that life has meaning, you just haven't thought through it like I have. That's not true. But it sounds very smart, doesn't it? It's dead men's bones. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. You're not going to find life there. And the fifth tomb full of bones where we try to seek life is, you ready for this one? Piety. Religion. And I'm not even talking about false religion now. I'm talking about Christian religion. We try to find life through religion, through the church, through Christian culture, which is not the same thing as Christianity. You know that, do you not? Please tell me you do. Through church experiences, we obsess over the church. We begin to make stricter and stricter rules, just like the Pharisees did. The Lord said not to work on the, fair, on the Sabbath day, so you know what? Don't even look in a mirror because you might see a gray hair. And if you pull that out, it's like harvesting. So don't do any work on the Sabbath day becomes don't look in the mirror on the Sabbath day. We do that in the church. Now, I know what the Bible says, but I think these are some good boundaries to set up. That's fine, but don't you dare enforce them like they're the actual commandment. We post pious things online. Maybe we even pray and fast. We chase red meat sermons to tickle our ears. And I'm not talking about even bad doctrine. I want somebody that's going to really lay it on them and give it to us. It might be good sermons, but if that's all you listen to, it's false piety. You can see all kinds of false piety if you check out our YouTube channel and read some of the comments. Religious people who completely missed the point of what was being talked about because there was one thing that they kind of disagreed with and their brain locked in and down they go. 
Ecclesiastes 7.15 says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and a wicked man who prolongs his life by evil doing. Righteousness in that. Don't think of righteousness there like Paul talks about saving righteousness. He's talking about pious religious people that go to temple and make the sacrifices. Religion is no guarantee of joy or abundance. Somebody told you that and you've walked away because of that? Sorry, they were wrong. In fact, if you're going to just be just pious, no real life thriving relationship with God, it's just you doing church things, it leads to bitter living. Jesus and John the Baptist and Isaiah and Jeremiah's harshest words were not for the pagans, for church folks, because they couldn't get over themselves. And Isaiah, he said, I wish you would just stop your sacrifices. Your festivals make me sick. It's like, Lord, <laughs> how can you say something like that? They probably called Isaiah a false prophet. He told us to stop worshiping. God said we should never stop worshiping. Completely missing what the Spirit was trying to say. Same thing for Jesus, same thing for John the Baptist. Not even the church and the Bible and tithing and rituals and prayers are able to save you. Jesus himself said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. But these are they which testify of me and you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Bible is only as useful as it drives you to Jesus. And if you stop here, how better are you than some higher critic that spends his time picking apart the Bible for a living? And yet every generation has its hardened churchmen who try anyway. These are the people that cannot abide change in the church. People who cannot abide, people that are not just like them in the church. People that do not want anything that has not been said before to be said. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's not here. So we've been through five tombs just now. We begin with pleasure and possessions, power, piety, philosophy. Well, then, is there anything left? <laughs> is there any other tomb where we might find life? I've tried every. That's pretty much everything that describes life. Well, it's a silly question. You don't find life among the dead. You search tombs trying to find somebody who's alive. You're not going to find anybody. You've got to stop looking among the tombs. Just like Jesus Christ came out of that tomb and lives again forevermore. If you truly want to find life, and I'm talking about life now. I'm talking about abundant life in Christ Jesus. You've got to talk to the one that has actually been there and come back. If you want to be raised from the dead, you better know somebody who has already been raised from the dead and can tell you how to get there. I'll just take my chances. I wouldn't. I'll talk to the only one who came back on his own and never died again. Romans 6 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. Because he is risen, we will rise with him. And when you have that hope and that truth, this life, this now life, becomes renewed with resurrection power. The same power that raised him from the dead comes into your life and begins to restore and renew it. I say, okay, but how do we know this? 
This is not today an apologetics message. There's plenty of, of information I could get into here, but can I just give you one thing to consider? Consider the testimony of the resurrection. How do we know that this happened? Because we still have the testimony. The earliest writings of the New Testament, undisputed, by the way, are between 45 and 50 A.D. How many years after Jesus' death and resurrection is that? 15 to 20 years? Think about where you were 15 to 20 years ago. You try to write a bunch of lies about something that happened then, people will, will challenge you on that, will they not? And then you see in the New Testament, the gospel did not develop, it came. They had it, and they were preaching it well before they wrote it down because they had to do the things that they wrote about first. It was the qualification of an apostle and the defining work of an apostle to witness to the resurrection. I saw him alive. That's what 1 John chapter 1 says. That which we have seen, which we've heard, which we've handled, which we've known. He says, I knew Jesus. Don't come at me and get all spiritual and say it doesn't matter if he was alive or not. He was my friend. I know Jesus. I knew him and I saw him alive. Well, they could have just come together and decided, you know, Jesus had some good things to say, so let's, let's say that he rose from the dead and then just lie to people. Unto death? If you decided you're going to come up with a lie and somebody said, stop lying or I'm going to nail you to a cross and watch you bleed out, would you still go forward with that? If you knew it was a lie? What about when you saw five or six of your buddies crucified, heads cut off? skinned alive, dragged by horses, pulled apart by wild beasts. You're going to keep going with that? And keep telling other people and encouraging them to go to their deaths? And for 2,000 years, the church has faithfully maintained this testimony. In fact, do you know that there's never been a time in church history where we have not proclaimed the resurrection from the dead? There's been all kinds of weird stuff in the church. That has never changed. And if the resurrection is true, everything else follows. Well, I need more evidence. Well, then let me ask you this question. What kind of evidence could you possibly hope for for an event that happened 2,000 years ago? You're not going to get video evidence. I can tell you that right now. The best thing you can hope for is an eyewitness writing it down, which is exactly what we have. And also an unbroken and traceable chain of teachers to those that saw if you believe that anything happened that long ago, you have to rely on something that was written down by somebody who saw it. And that's what you have in the New Testament. But more than that, how many lives have been transformed by the testimony of the risen Jesus? Raise your hand if your life has been transformed by the testimony of the risen Jesus. In the room, been lifted out of the pit. How many families have been renewed by the testimony of the risen Jesus? Mine, I can tell you that much. Watching it happen, watching families and marriages come back together that were irreparably broken. How many bodies have been healed by the testimony of the risen Jesus? Y'all, on Thursday night, we saw a miraculous healing in this room. Why did everybody get all quiet when we do that, like I'm lying to you? <laughs> we all do that. We say, Jesus, yes. Resurrection, yes. Miracles, yes. Today, healing. W well, do you have a doctor's report? Give me a break. In this room, we prayed for somebody. And they were miraculously healed in that moment. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. He's still alive and he's still doing the work. Miracles don't happen. That happened last week. I told you all to come to a week of prayer, didn't I? 
half of y'all are like, man, I should have come. What did I do Thursday night? I don't even remember. Talk to Brandon afterwards. He'll tell you the story. And he's not the first one that we have seen here. He's still doing the work. Consider Christians who believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They die like champions, do they not? They're on that deathbed waiting to go into the great unknown with a smile on their face. Say, I'm excited to go. I'm ready to go. I'm willing to go. And their families are there grieving and broken, but full of joy and singing and celebrating. Where does that come from? At the very least, it should cause you to investigate a little further. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. We've seen it here. If you want real life, you've got to go to the one that has it, who's gone into the grave and come out of the grave on his own. Lazarus died again. Jesus didn't die again. We were looking in all the wrong places. We're rooting through the bones. It's got to be here somewhere. One more, just one more thing, and that'll be it. It will satisfy me. But you know what happens when you call upon the Lord to save you? When you repent of your sins and you say, Lord, you've got to restore me and give me newness of life. I can't keep living this way. Jesus, risen Jesus, help me. A resurrection begins to take place in your own life. And if I can borrow a phrase from the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord said to him in Ezekiel 37.3, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. Here's the amazing thing. So all the things I was talking about, you're like, you're talking about them like it's all negative. There's some good to that. You're right. But you're only going to find it when Jesus comes and breathes on them. And the dry bones begin to rattle and begin to form together and become new life. You learn that pleasure can be whole and good. Having happiness and joy not tainted by sin. The Bible says at the right hand of the Lord there are pleasures forevermore. You begin to renew life. You live life to the fullest in Christ Jesus. And it's not excessive and it's not carnal, but you realize all things are from his hand. Don't Christians have a lot of rules? Well, don't sin, but you know what Jesus said? Christians sanctify things when we use them. Things don't corrupt you. You sanctify things. You make them worthy by your use. You learn to own your possessions and be content with them. If you're not content with a little, you won't be content with a lot. Isn't that true? But if you're content with a little, you will be content with a lot. You're not owned by the things that you own. But you realize that I'm owned by Jesus Christ. So I can enjoy that car. I can enjoy the money. I can enjoy the vacation without guilt, first of all, but also without this incredible pressure to make it work for me. And if I lose it, I lose it. You can have actual power and status to be enjoyed without fear or striving, without having to put yourself forward, but starting at the foot of the table and letting God bring you to the head of the table. And if you're down or if you're up, it's okay. Paul says, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. I can do all things through Christ. You know that your rightful place is as a servant of Jesus Christ. Therefore, whatever happens in the flesh is immaterial. It's not you get saved and then you become powerful. You get saved and then it doesn't matter if you're powerful or not. Isn't that better? That's so much better. Knowledge becomes your servant as you learn new truth. You begin to see it as the Spirit illuminates you. And you learn things and you take fresh delight. You know the first scientists were Christians, right? Because they loved the Lord so much, they wanted to learn everything there was to know about His creation. Knowledge 
and reading and beauty and art all come alive in Christ Jesus. People will say, oh, Christians are opposed to art and, and religion poisons art, really. Or all those Renaissance paintings about. They were all pictures of Jesus and angels and Bible stories because it renews knowledge. And now your religion comes alive. Now your piety means something. Your prayers and the readings of scripture and the meetings will live because Jesus is there. It's not just a bunch of people calling out to the ceiling and putting on a good show and trying to maintain our culture. You're just loving the Lord. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord and live as he lived and as only he lived. When you come to Christ and you let your life be crucified with him, it is resurrected again. And you enter into newness of life, as Paul called it. But you must not think that this is just a psychological reaction to a happy story. That's not what the resurrection is. There's lots of folks, because here's the thing. Christians have, have pretty decidedly won the battle in the, in the scientific and philosophical front on this. The, our apologetics of the 20th, 20th century were just incredible. So now the, the argument is shifting to not where is the Bible true and reliable. It's, it doesn't matter if the Bible's true or reliable. That's called shifting the goalposts, huh? You're about to win. Ah, it doesn't matter anyway. And folks will say, who cares if Jesus rose from the dead? As long as you believe it. As long as he's alive in my heart. As long as it matters. I promise it matters. The Bible acknowledges it matters. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, if Jesus gives you a good life, tell that to somebody in Sudan who's being hunted for Jesus' sake. Tell that to people that are being beheaded and crucified. People in China that are being sent to concentration camps for Jesus. Don't worry, he'll give you a good life. Well, what hope is that to them? It's pitiful. It's pathetic. To come to the risen Jesus and receive his blessings, you've got to understand what the resurrection means. Jesus died as a payment for your sins. That's what you deserve. The floggings and the beatings and the nails and the crown of thorns and the mockery is what you deserve. That's what your sin has earned. The wages of sin is death. The soul who sins shall surely die. Since the Garden of Eden, you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Because sin is a cosmic transgression. If you introduce evil into God's perfect world and perpetuate it and continue it, you have a death penalty coming your way. Well, God is so harsh. Uh, no, you're evil. We're wicked. You know, I go to prisons and, I, and I've started doing this, talking to men in maximum security facilities. And you'll hear them talk and complain about the officer that pulled them over. That judge wasn't fair. And it's like, but you know what you did. You were a violent man. You were, you were pushing drugs on people. You maybe even committed some kind of sexual crime and you're upset that the guy who pulled you over shouldn't have pulled you over. He was just looking for trouble. That's what we do with God. I just don't think it's fair. You know the depths of your own sin. This is why we're all so anxious and stressed out and suicidal today because we know what we're like. And you still live in that death and under that judgment if you have not repented. You've got to come to Christ and ask for forgiveness. Say, Jesus' payment on the cross needs to count for me. If it doesn't, I'm sunk. Yeah. 
That's where you need to get to. But the resurrection represents a newness of life, that the payment was accepted, that it was the first fruits, the Bible says, of those risen from the dead. It's that Jesus rising from the dead was that first apple that's ripe at the beginning of the season. You know, there's many, many more to come, but this is the first one. There's more to come. So if you come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and you renounce your old life, I'm dying to the old life. I'm not going to live the same way or define myself the same way or do the same things or think the same way. Instead, I'm going to throw myself on Jesus as my only hope of life and death. You will be saved and death will no longer come to you except your flesh, which needs to die anyway. Your body has to die. It's corrupted. Anybody amens on that? But your soul is being renewed day by day, the, body says, the Bible says. You've got to become like him in his death first. Bow the knee and say, God, the old man's got to go. So that you can raise up to gain his resurrection. And I'm telling you, if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter that you're here on Easter morning. Didn't we just go through this? It doesn't matter if you feel like you're okay. It doesn't matter if you're really good at persuading yourself and stopping yourself thinking about the big picture because it stresses you out. You're going to hell if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. Your death will not be a release. It'll be an entryway to eternal torment and damnation. That's what you deserve. And you kind of know that. You might not like me for saying that, but you know it. What's going to happen when you die? Well, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. That's a foolish thing to say. Well, I'll work it out with God when I get there. God will ask you one question. What did you do about Jesus Christ? I gave you a way out. Did you take it? I I didn't have enough evidence. I sent Tyler to preach it right in your face. He got loud with you on Resurrection Sunday, 2022. So what, what excuse do you have? Lord, have mercy. I offered you mercy and you spat in my face. And now you face the judge. You trying to scare me? Yes. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise knowledge and instruction. But today could be your day. You know what today could be? Today could be the last day you deal with the so-called existential horror that everybody faces. Today could be the last day you worry and wonder about what's going to happen when you die. Today could be the last day you feel unloved and unwanted. Today could be the last day you struggle with that sin. Today could be the last day you wander through life, crying out to the darkness, saying, where is God? I'm telling you, he's here. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen and he's here and his testimony is here today and life is being extended to you. If you have ever prayed, God, show yourself to me if you're real, this is it. God is talking to you now. I am real, I'm risen and I'm offering you forgiveness. Oh Lord, I've done so much. God goes, I don't care. Jesus took it all on the cross. It's been paid for. Well, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. Exactly. That's the whole point, isn't it? He rose from the dead to offer salvation freely. You know the first person Jesus spoke to after his resurrection? Mary Magdalene. She was possessed with seven demons before they were cast out. That's why she followed Jesus. Where else is she supposed to go after having seven demons cast out? Probably driven a few people away at that point. But consider the people Jesus called. Fishermen, zealots, political revolutionaries, tax collectors. Paul was a religious terrorist. And God saved them. 
You can be saved today. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God that you deserve. God is so harsh. God is offering you a way out. If you can just take it. If you will, number one, believe the story. You've got to choose to believe the story. You've been given enough evidence. It's time to believe. Then you must repent. You've got to say, no more. I'm not living that way any longer. You ask God to forgive you. I'm sorry, Lord, please help. And then you receive the resurrection life of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and your soul will be regenerated. It's like a divine defibrillator jumping on your heart. And now everything begins to change. And you're going to watch your life transformed. And you're going to change other people's lives. And you're going to be reaching out to those that are lost. And everybody else is still going to be arguing up here about all the different issues in the world. But you won't care because you're going to be a secret agent of God going right to where the problem is and bringing more people out of the fire every day. That's life. And it's being offered to you today. I'll end with one more illustration. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus met a demon-possessed man who lived in the tombs. He was actually living in the tombs. He was so full of demons, when Jesus asked the demons their name, they said legion, like a Roman legion. There was an army of demons in this guy. They had tried to tie him up with chains and ropes, but he would break the chains and ropes and beat people up. He lived in the tombs, naked, unshorn. His hair was long, his beard was long. He would cut himself in the tombs and howl in the middle of the night. What a miserable existence is that? Some of you feel like that's your life. You feel like you've got nowhere to go. You feel like you're living in death and you're crying out for help. And some of you maybe have even cut yourself crying out. But when Jesus showed up, all it took was a word for that man to be saved. And then he was seated and clothed and in his right mind. And he went and preached the gospel and told his story to everybody who would listen. And they didn't want Jesus the first time, but when Jesus came back, they were excited to see him because the work had begun. And that town was experiencing revival and refreshing and renewal. Every longing of man is a longing for God, even if you don't realize it. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen.